You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So we're starting the book of Hebrews and starting a new sermon series for preachers like Christmas morning. It's just like an exciting time to jump into something new. And really, I love the book of Hebrews because it's so rich in its doctrine. And so what this, what this series is going to give us a chance to do as a church is to dive into some, some deep doctrine about who Jesus is and why we worship Jesus and what he came to accomplish. And um, it's, it's a really interesting book. Uh, listen, I wanted to begin by telling you a, a little bit of history about a, a, a song, actually, um, called Green Sleeves. Show of hands if you know the song Green Sleeves. Okay, so I didn't know it by that name, um, but my daughter Bella was playing it on viola recently um, and learned it, and uh, Tori was playing it, and a bunch of, bunch of those girls were, were telling me about it, and I was like, no, that's what child is this. It's this song. Y'all know it? Okay, I don't have to keep singing. Okay. Front row was like, yes, we know it. Okay. All right, so that song was written in the 1500s. And um, King Henry VIII actually kind of took credit for composing and writing that song. Um, what Child Is This are, are just lyrics that are, that are put to that tune in the 1800s. But the original song is about a lady uh, by the nickname of Greensleeves. And that song is probably the oldest English song that we still have. And what's interesting about it is... King Henry was kind of a slimy fellow, and most historians will agree that he took credit for that song without actually writing the song, um, that he wasn't actually the composer, but because of his prominence and ability, he took credit for it, kind of like Whitney Houston taking Dolly Parton's, you know, I will, I will always love you, right? Um, Whitney's is better, though, just for the record. Um, I know I made some enemies with that, but with green sleeves in the 16th century, there were, there were no billboard charts, there were no recording devices, there was no way really to, to make sure that your name stayed on the song. Like in today's time, they, they have like producer tags, you know, DJ Khaled, another one. That's why they put that in there, so no one can steal their song, right? And, and they didn't have that in the 16th century, and so when, when Henry stole it, most people agree he stole it, but no one can prove who actually wrote it. And so the actual author of this great and timeless classic song is just kind of lost in history. And the reason I tell you that story is that kind of the same thing happened with the letter to the Hebrews. And as we jump into this book of the Bible, it's toward the end of your Bibles, if you have a, a, a real paper Bible and you're looking for it, it's at the end, and we have this lengthy letter, it's, it's kind of organized in with the smaller epistles, smaller letters, but we have it, and, and there's no author that's named. Um, it's, it's the only epistle or letter, by the way, that, that claims no author. And, and so the earliest manuscripts simply just had the title to the Hebrews. Uh, some people think it was kind of like a group effort that, that the apostles wrote together to write to the Hebrews. Um, it was most likely written to Hellenistic Jews, uh, which means Greek-cultured Jewish people, and, and probably Jewish families who mostly lived outside of the land of Palestine. So they were no longer living in Israel. There were the largest concentration of Hebrews in the, the cities of Alexandria and Rome. And so these, uh, the reason we know it was written to Hellenistic Jews is because it's written in Greek, and it was almost exclusively, all the Old Testament quotations in this book uh, come from the Greek Septuagint. 
And so the audience that would receive it were Jews who were no longer reading and speaking the Hebrew language. They had moved on and begun to speak the Greek language. And so when they were reading the Old Testament, even though it's written in Hebrew, they would read it and understand it in Greek. Greek had become the common language of these Hellenistic Jews in Rome and Alexandria and other parts of the world. And so uh, let me just take a little bit of time to build the context because we do have some nerdy people in our church, okay? And, and I want to deal with who wrote the book before I dive into the actual content of the book. I've got five possibilities that I think are viable possibilities by my study this week. Number one is the Apostle Paul. Um, it, it has Pauline doctrine in it. A lot of the themes that are in the book of Hebrews are similar to what Paul writes about. Um, but the, the problem with Paul being the author is in every letter Paul writes in the New Testament, there are 13 other ones, he names himself. He very clearly names that he is the author. Um, he talks about his own experiences. He, he writes very personally, and there's none of that in Hebrews. Uh, the Greek language that, that Hebrews is written in is also a very different style uh, linguistically than what Paul normally writes in. But Clement of Alexandria, around 200 AD, one of the church fathers, he named Paul as the originator of the manuscript. He actually claimed in 200 AD that Paul wrote it in Hebrew. And then it was translated by Luke into Greek, Paul's associate. Now, another option, you have Paul as one option of the author. Luke is the second option. Uh, some scholars have determined that the Greek style that's, that's in the language of Hebrews and the vocabulary that's used is most similar to the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts that was also written by Luke. Now, Luke doesn't mention himself in Luke or Acts, and if he wrote Hebrews, he doesn't mention himself there either. Um, rather, it's deduced by his first-person travels with Paul. Now, Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And so this would explain why he may be reluctant to um, name himself as the author of a book that was written primarily to Hebrew people. The doctrinal themes are very Pauline, uh, which would be explained by Luke's close travels and listening to the teachings of Paul. The third option would be Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas means son of encouragement. There's actually a verse near the end of Hebrews that mentions encouragement. Some people think that's like a little hint that Barnabas wrote it. Uh, the church father Tertullian asserted that Barnabas was the author. Uh, he believed Barnabas to be the one who wrote it. He, only, he said this only about a decade after uh, Clement had claimed that Paul slash Luke had written it. Uh, some of the things that may seem like Barnabas wrote it, he was a Levite, so he would have understood the sacrificial system, the priesthood. A lot of those themes are very present in the letter to the Hebrews. The fourth option I'll give you is Apollos. Um, this, this view was held by Martin Luther, the great reformer. They believe that Apollos wrote it, um, namely because Apollos was a Hellenistic Jew, the most prominent Hellenistic Jew that is mentioned in uh, the New Testament. In Acts 18.24, we meet this guy. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. So it's important. He's from Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. So he's competent. He knows the Scriptures. He, he's eloquent, which means that he was able to write. Um, and he was from Alexandria. There was an epistle from Paul to the Romans, which we call the Book of Romans. Um, Hebrews, perhaps, was the one to the city of Alexandria. But why would he not name himself? Apollos was a very popular preacher. Uh, he, was, he was one of the favorites of the Corinthian church. Uh, most people would say he probably would have named himself um, if he had the opportunity. The fifth option I'll give you among lots of others that could be possible is Priscilla. 
for the feminists in the room. Uh, a woman could have wrote this. Uh, this was most popularly propo- proposed by Adolf von Harnack in the year 1900. And he proposed that Priscilla wrote it because Priscilla, also a Hellenistic Jew, was the one who corrected Apollos in his theology. In Acts 18.26, Apollos begins to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and her husband Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so this theory says that Priscilla was actually the author of the letter to the Hebrews, Um, But she didn't mention her name because she was a woman and it would have not been respected. And so she wrote it anonymously. Now, the guy that uh, popularized this theory also didn't believe that miracles were possible and uh, and in a a liberal way explained away the resurrection. And so not necessarily the guy you want to trust the most, but Priscilla does make an interesting case. Out of all those, if you're curious who I think wrote it, I tend to think Luke wrote it. Um, but, but I do like the idea that, that the apostles actually worked on these doctrines and, and things together. Now, it, it certainly serves a place in our Bibles. Uh, throughout the years, because the author is anonymous, it has been um, challenged. There have been people who have said that this book shouldn't be in the Scriptures. Um, but, but I would attest to you that it, when you look throughout church history, that it is unequivocally uh, belongs in the canon of Scripture, that the church throughout history has acknowledged that this was approved by the apostles of Jesus Christ in the first century. Um, it's a very early book, we know, by uh, the lack of mentioning of the destroying of the temple. It writes as if the temple's still there. So it's written in the early days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and was affirmed by the church as being canonical or part of the Bible. And so um, as we jump into this. I, I hope that you uh, will dive into it, that you'll either take a journal or, or continually uh, read in your Bibles Hebrews and take notes and, and really benefit from the rich doctrine that lie within these pages, okay? I've got two points to you uh, today with six subpoints. okay? I'm, I'm pulling a Jeremy Berry today. Y'all buckle up. I'm going to make it, I'm going to have an eight-point sermon, but I'm going to lie and tell you it's two points, Okay. Uh, the, two, the two I want to look at are long ago and last days, uh, the beginning of this uh, text, and then we'll, we'll look at an introduction to the Son or the description of the Son of God as our second point in those six subpoints. Let's look at long ago and last days. Now, um, when, when we hit the pandemic uh, and, and our churches, we closed for a little while and then we opened back up and we had lots of services and we were all spreading out and doing different things and... Um, I remember Judah got COVID at one point and our whole family had to quarantine and I had been ridiculed for a long time uh, by, by our entire church. It was really an unfair persecution for not having watched any of the Star Wars movies. And so I decided that during Judah's quarantine that he and I were going to uh, just hold up together and we're going to watch all the Star Wars movies. And I, how many are there? Eight? No, there's like 11, right? counting the spinoffs, okay? So we got through nine of the 11, all right? So that was pretty, pretty impressive, I think. Um, but you remember how the, the Star Wars begins with like the terrible scrolling? I thought about doing all our scripture readings like that today, just like the, the yellow font on the stars just scrolling. Um, but it's in a galaxy far, far away, right? And it's just got that kind of cinematic, majestic beginning. This is kind of how the author of Hebrews begins the book. He begins by saying, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Again, the eloquence of this is, is one of the richest letters in the New Testament. And, and you can tell that, that the author is, is even poetic in how he uses his words. And he, um, he, he uses this phrase, long ago. 
I think he's pointing back to history past, specifically the Old Testament. I think this, this whole sentence is a reference to the Old Testament. And he, he's building off of the Old Testament. Hebrews quotes the Old Testament more than the other epistles uh, other than the book of Romans. But even more so than the book of Romans, Hebrews teaches us um, how to unpack and read the Old Testament. Really, it is probably the best epistle in the New Testament to shape how you interpret and understand the Old Testament. Um, Hebrews quotes it often. Uh, also, when we were starting the pandemic in 2020, four years ago, um, I decided that we were going to preach through the book of Leviticus. Some of y'all still hate me for that, um, but it was one of my favorite sermon series to go through. Um, and the reason I liked it is because, you know, when you preach like Ephesians, you know, it's like Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead. You kind of know like what you're doing, but then you read, you know, Leviticus and it's like, take a goat and slit its throat and go out back and, and it's just like, and don't eat bread and like all these kind of weird things. It's just like shrouded in mystery. And so there's so much to unpack. Those, those of you that like mystery novels, you, you know, like the Old Testament's kind of mysterious, right? And so um, it's shrouded in this mystery because the Old Testament saints hadn't had the revelation of the Son of God, hadn't seen what Jesus was going to accomplish, how he would save his people through his death on the cross and the resurrection. And so Hebrews actually looks back into the Old Testament. So as we go through this book, that's what we'll be doing, looking back into the Old Testament to see how God was actually telling the story of the cross before the cross happened. And Hebrews gives us a Christocentric lens in which to view the entire Bible through. Now you're going to hear me say that word a lot, Christocentric, as we go through this book. And the reason I say that is it means Christ at the center. Christocentric means that as we look at the Old Testament where Jesus is not named, we are going to see very clearly and given a, a, a how-to guide in Hebrews to see that it was always about Jesus. Carl F.H. Henry speaks about this revelation, and he says, Revelation is God's willful disclosure wherein he forfeits his own personal privacy so that his creatures might know him. And the author of Hebrews starts out by saying that God has revealed himself. Revelation has come. And long ago, in the Old Testament times, he says it happened at many times and in many ways. And he said specifically that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That God in his goodness has chosen, I love how Henry puts it, to forsake or forfeit his personal privacy. Y'all parents know how hard that is, right? Our Bible calls God a father. You ever try to go to the bathroom when you got little kids? The little fingers under the doors, right? Like you know how valuable privacy is. Like kids, just leave us alone for a little bit, right? But our loving heavenly father forfeits his personal privacy so that his creatures might know him. And so we have greater revelation brought to us at the beginning of Hebrews. Now, as we think about the idea of revelation, what I'm talking about is God revealing himself to us, who he is, so that we can know him. There are two broad categories of revelation, general, number one, and number two, special revelation. So we have general revelation, uh, which is seeing, uh, seeing God's handiwork in creation. We have special revelation, which is how God um, supernaturally reveals himself specifically. 
In general revelation, you have things like Psalm 19.1, which say the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is also mentioned in reference to in Romans 1, verse 20. This says, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. General revelation means that even if you never had a Bible or never had a church to go to, you should know that there is a creator that there is a God who has made all things. That's general revelation. But God doesn't stop there, thankfully. He gives us special revelation. And as the epistle to Hebrews begins, the author is referring to this special revelation. He says, namely, he has spoken to us by our fathers through the prophets. God speaks through prophets in the Old Testament, dreams, signs. There's even one time he speaks through a donkey. It's like Shrek. That, you know, they, they weren't the original ones. Eddie Murphy didn't start that. That came from the Bible. And God is, is specially revealing himself to his people, setting up the ultimate revelation, which is Jesus Christ. And Hebrews makes this case in verse 2. He continues, he says, but in these last days, you see the contrast, all this, all this good revelation long ago in a galaxy far, far away, God has revealed himself progressively throughout history, but then here comes the contrast in verse two of the book, really setting up what the book is about. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews makes the case that this is the fulfillment of revelation It is the climax of revelation, that God ultimately has revealed himself in lots of ways, but the final and full and complete way that he reveals himself is through his son. Now, these last days, as the author writes this, refers to a recent time period, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. But in this time period that we call the New Testament or even the New Covenant, And so the last days, I believe, also refers to this time period in this new covenant that we still live in. And namely, this means that revelation is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, God's Son. You know, now here's the problem with us human beings is is we love revelation. We love most of us, by the way. Some of y'all are just messed up. But most of us really like to learn new things, especially if it's advantageous to us, right? Right? Like if we, could, if we could know the future about our own lives, whoo, wouldn't that be good to know? If we could know those lottery numbers, if we could know who's going to win the Super Bowl, get on DraftKings, you know what I'm saying? Like if, if those tarot cards work, you know, it, like that eight ball that we had as a kid, like how many times we went back and you weren't supposed to, you're supposed to roll that thing, not shake it, but we put bubbles in it by shaking it, try, just anxiously trying to get revelation, right? And what God has said is he has fulfilled all the revelation, it's in Jesus, and so we have all that we need to know about God. But, but time and time and time again, church after church after church, we're not satisfied with the revelation that we have. We want more. And so what we begin to do is, especially at New Year, we got a lot of, a lot of people that are looking for a fresh word or some kind of prophetic vision or come to the preacher and let him tell you what this New Year holds for you. Listen, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm a preacher of the word of God. I don't have anything new for you, Okay? This means that all revelations beyond the final revelation of Jesus Christ to John when the Bible is finished are counterfeit and, dare I say, even demonic. Galatians 1.8 gives us this warning, if we or an angel from heaven, 
Even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you. Let him be accursed. That, that fallen angels, I believe, have, have influenced cultic practices for thousands of years. Muhammad took some Old Testament truth and claimed to have been visited by an angel and he was given another gospel that gave rise to the religion of Islam. A guy in America named Joseph Smith wrote another testament wanting more revelation than what we have been given by God and claimed that he received golden tablets from an angel which is now known as the Book of Mormon, which gave rise to a dangerous cult. You see, in a, in a, in a microcosmic way also, like I don't think, hopefully none of y'all are like trying to start new cults, but in a microcosmic way, some of us are tempted to chase after the same things. And we end up finding these clowns that are, that are posing as pastors who are saying, God told me, rather than this is what God says in his word. And so if I ever get to the point, listen, that, that I'm telling you, here's what God has for you, you better check it with the Bible. And if it's out of line with the Bible, it's not from God. We don't follow a prophet. We don't follow and have pure allegiance to a pastor. We follow Jesus Christ. We have a revelation of the Son of God and none other. So Hebrews teaches us that we don't look for more revelation. We don't add to God's revelation. We don't add to the scriptures. You know what else we don't do? We don't take away from God's revelation. So there's some clowns that are trying to add to it. There's some other clowns on the other end of the spectrum that are trying to take away from it. That will say that the Old Testament is irrelevant. Or that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. There's a guy that's pretty popular named Andy Stanley. He's the son of popular preacher Charles Stanley. He's been teaching his church for over five years now to distance themselves from the Old Testament. In 2018, he preached a, a sermon that caused him to be disassociated by most evangelical leaders. In, in that sermon, he says that Christians should unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. Let me share this quote with you from him on a podcast as he explained that. He said, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. That's a dangerous statement. Let me just say this. The author of Hebrews disagrees with Andy Stanley. The author of Hebrews couldn't disagree more. Matter of fact, he or she says that the way to present Jesus is through the Old Testament. That the best way to understand the full revelation of who Jesus is, is understanding who God had revealed him to be from the beginning of creation. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus himself taught. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so all of the Old Testament is leading us up to Christ, and all of the New Testament is us looking back to Christ making the cross the crux of all history, the center of why we exist. Point two, let me introduce you to the Son of God. This is essentially what the author of Hebrews is saying. Given that, we have this revelation in the Old Testament, and in these last days, God has revealed who he is through his Son. Let me spend the rest of this letter, essentially, introducing you to this Son, the Son of God. And Hebrews will make the case for this man, Jesus, and introduce us to him and show us his work in his death and resurrection and remind us of the gospel week after week after week as we continue through this as a church. And in these first few verses, the author identifies six things that we need to know 
about the Son of God. Number one, Jesus is central to all things. He is, secondly, the creator of all things. Thirdly, he is divinity, or he is God. Fourthly, he is sovereign, meaning that he is in control. Fifthly, he is our redeemer, that he accomplishes our salvation. And number six, he is king. He is Lord of all things. And I'll go back through those one by one with you this morning. Let me read verses two through four so we can get the beauty of the whole passage again. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The first thing the author wants you to see is that Jesus is central. He, again, Christocentric understanding of the scriptures. Jesus here in verse 2 is described as the heir of all things. Verse 2 says, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, um, now some of us might expect this to say, whom has always been the heir of all things, since Jesus was not created. Let me explain this a moment, that, that Hebrews is making the argument that, that the right that Jesus has to the position that he has is all based upon his work through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so because of that, he is the heir of all things. And that was secured in eternity past. It was always sure that Jesus would be the heir of all things, but the cross and the resurrection accomplished it. Now, parents in the room, let me explain it to you this way. Um, when you have your first kid, right, you are, you're exhausted. You need a lot of caffeine. You don't, know, you don't know what you're doing. When Bella was born, I was like, we can't do it. I, we got a returner. I, you know, I don't know, don't know what we're going to do. This is a predicament we're in. And then you fall in love, head over heels in love, and you, and you start printing pictures. Like, we have this, we have this like, Victorian-looking picture of baby Bella, our firstborn. Like, it's this, this ornate gold frame. We've never purchased a frame that nice the rest of our lives. Okay. <laughs> Nor have we ever printed a picture that big the rest of our lives. And then Micah's born, nary a picture was printed of that kid. It just didn't happen. And, and so when you're the only kid, like, like if those, even if you're an adult and you don't have any siblings, like I, I'll break it to you again, like you're spoiled, okay? When you're the only child, you have, you have all of the affection of the parents. You're, the time and the energy is not divided. Now we got five kids, right? They're all turning teenagers, and I'm telling them we're going to get one car, and they all get a fifth of it when they're able to drive, right? College, forget about it. You better study hard or practice hard one way or another, right? And, and so those things are difficult when we have lots of kids, but, but do you see how, how, how the author of Hebrews presents the son? There's no siblings. There's no one sharing the time of ruling that Jesus is rightfully has. He is the one. He is the heir of all things, the inheritor of all power and authority. 
And, and he's, in other places in Scripture, he's called the firstborn or called the only begotten. Those things don't indicate that he was created. Rather, they are indicators of his rank, that there is none that share what he has. And we know he wasn't created because he is next called the creator. And so number two is that Jesus is creator. First one, Jesus is central. Secondly, we see Jesus is the creator. Now, in the prologue of, of the Gospel of John, John actually writes, he, he, he has that beautiful prologue that says, the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it's, and it's poetic, and we don't know, as we're reading it, we don't exactly know what the word is or who the word is. And he goes on to say, and, and through the word, all things were made. And, and everything in, in the world that was made was made by the word, and if anything was, was ever going to exist, it had to come through this word. And, and he kind of brings you to the edge of your seat, like, what is the word? What's the word, John? And then you get to John 1.14 where he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we got to behold his glory. And it becomes evident that John is writing about Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews says in verse 2, through whom, speaking of Jesus, the Son, also he created the world. You see, we just celebrated Christmas. You know, Jesus' story was not revealed in Bethlehem, but in Genesis. That the, the, the Savior that we worship is present in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.16, Paul shows us this in his letter to Colossae. He says, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is our creator. And that leads us naturally to the conclusion of the third truth that Hebrews shares is that Jesus is God. Jesus is divinity. That as true Christians, we worship Jesus as divine. He is God and he alone is God. Not like the Mormons who think that he is a God and we can become gods along with him. Or not like Jehovah's Witnesses who say that the Father is God but the Son is not God. And this can be confusing since Jesus is called the Son of God. But scripture makes it clear that the Son is indicating that he is God. The second person of the Trinity is deity, is divinity. He is creator. He's created things. That makes him God. He accepts worship something the angels do not do. You notice in Scripture when people bow down to angels, they say, no, 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 get up. But Jesus accepts this worship. He claims to be God. He tells them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In his teaching, he told the Pharisees that before Abraham was, I am proving that he's always existed because he's divinity. What does Hebrews say about him in verse 3? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The word radiance means he is the outward showing of God. That if we're going to see God, we see Jesus. We see the Son. This is why God uses this kind of analogy of father and son. My, um, I grew up at Middle Fork Baptist Church, and for a long time when, when uh, my, my son Micah who I hear looks like me, at least in my younger days. I don't, maybe not so much now. But when he would visit that church, like he'd come home, he'd go, he'd go with Amanda's parents, and then he'd come back home and he'd be like, 
Dad, everybody at that church calls me Little Will. I don't understand. Why. It would just like get on his nerves. And I'm like, because I, I left that church as Little Will, and if I go back now, I'm Big Will. And, and, and when they saw him, they, they, it just reminded them of, of Little Will. It was like Will all over again. But he's not an exact duplicate, right? He's not a clone. Um, and, and, and no son can be exactly like their father. But this is where Jesus is different. He's called the son, but Hebrews makes it very clear that he's not just like the father, that, that he is God. He is the exact imprint of the father. Now, what's interesting about this is the Greek word is character, and, and it's, it's literally where we get the word character from. And, and so when we say the word character, we're just, you're speaking a Greek word. We didn't even change it in English. Youth, uh, young people, what's it called, uh, on TikTok, the, the main character energy. You know, okay, so like Jesus has that main character energy is what Hebrews is saying. That, that he is the exact imprint of God. He is how we see God. This word was also used to describe a chiseling tool for an artist who would make a statue. And I think takes us back to the creation in Genesis 1 where we are told that we are created in the image of God. We are imperfect images of God, but Jesus is the perfect image of God for us. And so if we want to know who God is, we have to know Jesus. We cannot know God without knowing Jesus. And we live at a time where people will sell you and try to convince you that there are many roads to God, but there is only one, and it is Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is an exclusive Savior. Colossians 1.15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so the author of Hebrews describes Jesus' divinity as the radiance of God that we can see. Fourthly, He is sovereign. Further proving that He is God, we see that Jesus is sovereign. This means that He's all-powerful, that He's in full control. Verse 3 goes on to say, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He upholds the universe. This means that He is active in His universe that He has created, and if He would cease to be active for one split second, it would fall apart. In Greek mythology, they had a, they had a titan that they acknowledge by the name of Atlas. You guys have probably seen Atlas. He's that guy that's holding the whole world on his shoulders, and he's like kind of crouched down, and he's old, and he's got a big beard, and he's, his back hurts. You guys know who I'm talking about, Atlas? He's holding the whole world, okay? And, and the story that the Greeks had was that, the, the, that in his rebellion as a titan, that Zeus, when he was defeated, sentenced him that his job for eternity was to hold up the heavens, and that's why you have this statue of, of Atlas straining to hold everything up. But the picture that Hebrews paints of Jesus is quite the opposite. Amen. Hallelujah. That he is not straining at all to uphold the universe. Rather, he is quite strong and not exhausted. And the application for you this morning is if you feel like you've got to hold it all together, if you feel a little bit like Atlas, like you've got the world on your shoulders and you're crumbling under its weight, the message of Jesus being sovereign is that he is the one who upholds it, not you. You don't have to hold it all together. You can crumble under the weight because you have a Savior who holds it together for you and holds you, who went to the cross to save you, who rose from the dead to guarantee you victory. 
That's the Savior you serve. And so he is sovereign, and we're reminded that he is our Redeemer. Number five, Jesus is our Redeemer. Most importantly, Christ is presented as our Redeemer. You see, we don't need another prophet because we have Christ's revelation. We don't need another priest because we have Christ's mediation. We don't need another king because we have Christ's lordship. That, that all of this is achieved through the cross of Jesus. And it's mentioned, it's, it's foreshadowed, it's, uh, it's previewed in verse 3 when the author says, after making purification for sins. This, this action of making purification of sins, the word purification is a foreshadowing for the theme of Hebrews. It's a Levitical word. It, it, it takes us back to Leviticus when the priests, when they went in to make atonement or to make um, sacrifice to cover the sins of the people, they had to purify themselves. You see, purifying is the removal of harmful things. Spiritually, it's the removal of sin. This was accomplished through the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He is our redeemer. And because he is our redeemer, we get to number six. Jesus has taken his rightful position as king of kings. Jesus is our king. You see, the case is made in Hebrews that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is superior, that he is greater than all things. The Greek word kraton is used 13 times in Hebrews, and it's spread thematically throughout the book. It's only used six other times in the rest of the Bible. And, and this word better or higher or greater or superior, the reason it is spread throughout the book of Hebrews systematically is to show us that through what Jesus accomplished, he is better than everything. He's better than everything. He's better than riches. He's better than drugs. He's better than sex. He's better than your joys. He's better than everything. That's the case that Hebrews is going to make. And the first case study, which we'll look at next week, is that he is far superior, better, and greater than the angels. It says, after he made purifications for sin, verse 3 says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, listen, we live in an age where we, I get the sentiment, I understand we say fly high when people pass away or someone gained their wings, but, but we don't become angels when we die, um, nor should we uh, elevate angels to a place of worship. And at the time that Hebrews was written, there were a lot of people that actually worshiped angels, and, and so the author's making the case, we don't need to um, hold these angels up on a high pedestal because Jesus is the only one who deserves that spot. He's far superior, far better. He is king. And what this is doing is, is teaching us not to lift our eyes to some afterlife where we get a harp and wings and float around, but an afterlife where we get to be with Jesus forever, where we serve him for all of our days that we can lift our eyes up because we know that Jesus is better than any earthly comfort or any earthly solution we could come up for our problems. Let me finish by giving you this verse, Colossians 3.1. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so after Jesus, is die, after Jesus dies for our sins and raises from the dead, we have over and over this picture in the New Testament of what Jesus does after that. He sits down. Like, what a boss move, right? He's the, his main character energy, right? He just sits down. 
It's finished. It's done. There's no battle left to fight. It's done. It is accomplished in our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. And because he is seated beside his Father, and because he has sent his Spirit to dwell in us, there is nothing that can touch us spiritually. Pestilence and persecution and famine and trials and all these things may come to us physically, but nothing can harm us spiritually. Jesus holds us, amen? He knows you personally. He loves you deeply. And he's saying, don't droop your head about the things in your life and the worries that you have. Rather, lift your eyes up to heaven and see that he has accomplished it already. And he's seated. It's finished. Don't let anyone throw your sin that you've repented of back up at you. Move past it because Jesus nailed it to a cross. And he rose from the dead to secure you forever. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.